Pound the Rock, the Scores NBA podcast. My name is Joseph Cacharo, and I'm joined, as always, by co-host Joe Wolfon. How you doing, man? Doing all right. Uh, we might have gotten some news on maybe not basketball being close to returning, but perhaps a path to basketball returning. I mean, at one point, it looked like we might have gotten some news that it was actually done. I think it was Jabari Young reported that... Uh, some executives and players or agents just wanted the season canceled. LeBron came out and tweeted that that was nonsense, that they want to finish the season. Um, we continue to hear that Vegas and, and the MGM Grand or uh, Disney World in Orlando are looking to house the NBA. Now we're hearing that they will be able to bring some family along with them. I don't know. It's uh, a lot of uh, a lot of kind of touch and go here. Has, has your mind changed at all since the first couple times we talked about this in terms of whether you believe that the 2019-20 season will be salvaged in some way? Not really. I mean, I guess you could say my feelings haven't changed about it just being a spectacularly bad idea for the league to come back. But I guess maybe like there's a slightly better possibility of it happening now just because... Just just given the sort of corporate interests and uh, you know the financial security of the players, owners, like everybody in the league is sort of pulling in the same direction on this. And so, you know, in spite of my thinking that it's not a great idea, just given, and obviously this is not exclusive to the NBA either, right? Like industry all over North America, all over the world basically is like itching to get things back up and running again, even though, you know, all the data and medical experts, like everybody who like kind of has their finger on the pulse to the extent that that's possible with, you know, dealing with such an unknown variable with this virus. Like everybody, I feel like ought to recognize that it's not going to be feasible, at least in any way that's going to be satisfactory to the general public. Like I know, I think it was Woj who who had this sort of long report uh, going behind the scenes a little bit about the league's thinking and, and Adam Silver in that piece was you know, essentially quoted as saying that the, the league was worried about some of the blowback that would come with them hoarding the number of tests that would be required to make this feasible. Yeah, and to only test if they're symptomatic. Right. Uh, and they, I think they estimated that they would need 15,000 tests in order for them to be able to do this safely. And, you know, right now, given the testing capacity in the United States, like that's just not like they're not going to be able to do that without sustaining a ton of blowback because the, the sort of testing shortfall, I think, is part of what is preventing the country from going back to work safely. And so, you know, for the NBA to be soliciting private tests so that they can get back to business while the rest of the country is struggling, uh, you know, under the weight of a lack of testing capacity and a lot of uncertainty that comes along with that, I think would be a really bad look. And so I'm glad to hear that the league at least recognizes that. You know, yeah, I I think all told, my feeling still is that as much as they're going to project optimism and keep coming up with with potential ideas for how to salvage the season, I ultimately just see this ending with a cancellation outright. I don't know. What do you What do you think? Yeah, I mean, I, I still I'd still lean towards that as well, but I I don't know. I guess maybe in the last week or two, I've started to think that there is still a possibility it's salvage because it does seem that. Based on you know what we're reading in reports, it does seem like the league is pretty willing to push back next season, you know, basically till Christmas if they have to, and and if that's the case, and they can you know wait out this season until even I don't know like ending it in September or something, then you know obviously the chances that it gets salvaged goes up. But if I absolutely had to pick yes or no, I'd still bet on no. Uh, and obviously, I mean, LeBron came out and had that tweet saying that nobody he knows is saying. Uh, in that Jabari Young piece, what the executives and agents were quoted as saying, which is that they they just want the league to cancel the season already. Now, LeBron obviously has a vested interest in the season continuing, not just, you know, in terms of his finances, which, you know, LeBron's LeBron. Like, he's going to be financially secure regardless. But I think from a basketball perspective, it's obviously going to be a lot easier to stomach for the teams that don't have a whole lot of skin in the game, who are essentially you know, out of the playoff picture regardless, and we're basically playing out the string. A lot different for LeBron James at 35 years old in a potentially legacy-defining season for him. You know, he might not have many more opportunities like this. He was absolutely in the championship hunt. And so I think it's going to be a tougher pill to swallow for guys in his position. 
Yeah, and not to mention, I mean, LeBron can say that he doesn't know anyone who's, who is uh, saying what Jabari Young's reporting, but the simple answer to that could just be like, well, a lot of people are lying when LeBron asks them because <laughs> no one wants to be the guy who says to LeBron, yeah, yeah, we, we'd actually prefer it gets canceled or we want it canceled. Right. So I, I wouldn't be surprised if LeBron's talking to other players and whatever that might actually want that, but when they talk to LeBron, they're saying, yeah, no, we get we got to get the league back up, man. Come on, we can't not play. That, that's always a possibility that people are just telling LeBron what he wants to hear when, when they talk to him. And another thing that was reported is that the league has no intention of separating these players from their families. Mm-hmm. And that's, of course, understandable, but it also really broadens uh, the bubble and the number of people that are going to have to be included in it. And then by extension, the number of tests that are going to have to uh, be made available. It's just a really complex web uh and I think logistically, it's going to be a real challenge no matter what. So I still think, you know, the safe money is on the season is over. That's kind of how I've been treating it for the last little while. And I, of course, I'm going to like, you know, continue to stay up on on every report that comes out and read about whatever proposal is out there. And I mean, I'm, I'm torn because like, I would like to be wrong, uh, but I would like to be wrong because if the NBA is coming back, I would hope that that means that we have reached a stage where, you know, certain industries can resume in a manner that is safe. And, and you know, I would hope that that would mean uh, that it isn't just the NBA and NBA exceptionalism that has won out here, but that, you know, the country, the continent, the world as a whole is moving toward some light at the end of the tunnel. Yeah, let's, uh, let's hope that is where the world is going. Well, in the meantime, um, a lot of people are getting their basketball fix from The Last Dance. Of course, you and I have been alternating uh, Sundays, writing takeaways from the two episodes at a time. Last night in the U.S. on ESPN, episodes five and six aired. This morning in Canada, those same episodes were available on Netflix. So uh, hopefully most people that are tuning into this right now have watched it, although there's not really much we're spoiling on a documentary based on events that happened more than two decades ago. So let's get into it. What uh, what are some of your big takeaways from episodes five and six? What did you like? What did you not like? Is there anything missing? Talk to me. Something I guess that I simultaneously like and don't like about the documentary is like there's a real, there's a bit of ADD going on where like it never really stays in any one place or any one time for very long. Um, a lot of jumping forward and backward. And obviously they have just like a ton of material to pack in and like they're trying to encompass the totality of Jordan's story and his career and his legacy into this project that is ostensibly about this one season. But I find, I don't know, I guess uh, certain storylines maybe get short (laughs) shrift as a result of that and maybe necessarily so. Um, But I did think it was interesting in, I think it was the sixth episode where they're just sort of drawing parallels, I think, between the 92-93 season and the 97-98 season, mm-hmm. which was like the last three-peat season um, from both eras, essentially, preceding, uh, you know, his first two retirements. And I thought, like, those, those seasons obviously both spoke to the mental and physical exhaustion that is perhaps an inevitable fallout of chasing excellence to the extent that Jordan was chasing it. And obviously, I think, you know, they showed the weight and the cost of his fame in a way that I don't think any of the episodes so far have done. And I think that maybe gave some insight into why he decided to walk away when he did in both instances. Yeah, a couple things. One, you mentioned them showing the, the mental and physical exhaustion of, you know, the third championship in the three peak. There's a point where John Paxson, who, by the way, people will now be reminded if they've watched episodes five and six, that before John Paxson was one half of Garpax, he was actually a Bulls legend um, and very beloved in the city of Chicago. Anyway, he mentions that uh, after the third title, Jordan looked more relieved than anything. And it reminded me, shameless plug, of when uh, after the Warriors won in 2018, and I got to talk to Steve Kerr maybe like two minutes after the champagne celebration for only about 30 seconds. And I was talking to him about, you know, that season and, and winning another one. It was their third in four years. And it was the last one with KD. And um, he mentioned that when you're that good, it's almost more a sense of relief than pure joy when you win, because 
all season, you're almost thinking about what could go wrong to derail you as opposed to what you have to do to win. And I thought that was interesting at the time. And it's interesting to then, you know, hear Paxson say Jordan seemed to have a similar kind of reaction to winning his third. And, and yeah, it's just kind of an interesting thing, right? You think about, you know, contrast that with Jordan winning his first, which we watched, I think it was last week. And, you know, the unbridled joy that comes out of that, or even LeBron winning his first when they, you know, they finally get to the mountaintop and win. And you, you contrast that with seasons in which maybe, although the Heat were expected to win, but you know what I mean, like seasons in which you're defending two or three, and it's just a given that you're supposed to win the way the Bulls were supposed to at the time, the way the Warriors were when KD joined them. And, and you think about that, it's like how much, if you were part of those teams, yeah, like I'm as competitive as anyone, but how much would I really enjoy winning in an environment where you're so expected to win all you do is spend the entire season thinking about what could go wrong like that doesn't seem like um, an environment that would breed happiness and I know you also mentioned um, we see Jordan dealing with the weight of his fame and I, I wrote about this in the takeaways last night I think there's a really interesting juxtaposition between Jordan and Barkley that the documentary doesn't specifically show or say but I kind of read between the lines of it and it's that, you know, they show um, the 93 finals and, you know, Barkley at his absolute peak, he's the MVP, had a great finals despite Phoenix losing. Even Barkley says that was the first time in his life, you know, he was playing so well and it was the first time in his life at that level that he realized he was not the best player in the world. And, you know, Jordan got the best of him and Jordan finishes with six championships and Chuck has zero and Jordan was this beloved figure and this marketing star and everyone literally wanted to be like Mike. And you hear Jordan in the doc say, if he could do it all over again, he doesn't think he'd want to be known as a role model. And Barkley, of course, made famous the fact that he is not a role model. That was literally, you know, when, every, when Jordan had be like Mike, Barkley's famous commercial was started with the words, I am not a role model. And I think it's interesting to look at it now. And, you know, I, I don't want to play psychiatrist here and say one guy's happier than the other, but... I can't get the sense that even though Jordan had all, like so much more success and was the role model, like when you listen to them speak now, it almost seems like Chuck is more content and loose and, and I don't know, carefree. And I, I just thought it was an interesting juxtaposition to me that even for Jordan, who winning was everything, I, I, there's a piece of me that believes Barkley seems more content, you know, and maybe it does have to do with the fact that in choosing to not be a role model, he never really had to deal with the same pressures and burdens that Jordan did. Yeah, I mean, I think that's true. And and those are all good points. I also just think there's a temperamental difference between those two guys. And I feel like, like Jordan is who he is for a reason. Like, I, and, I, and I think, you know, sort of by nature, he just seems like somebody who struggles to be fulfilled generally. Mm-hmm. Like, it's interesting to me that for all the accolades and the the success that he accrued on a basketball court, you know, essentially peerless in terms of what he accomplished as an NBA player, it still was not nearly enough to satiate his desire for competition. Like he had to be out there still, you know, laying thousands of dollars on the line on the golf course, playing a sport that he is obviously not nearly as good at as he is at basketball playing cards, like going to Atlantic City in the middle of an Eastern Conference final series, like it was never enough. And even now, all these years later, when he should be entirely secure in his legacy, his accomplishments, he still is kind of airing these petty grievances. And I think, I, I think that's just part of who he is. It's part of what made him the player and the person that he became. And I just don't know, like Barkley is obviously, I mean, one of the all-time greats and certainly a, a hyper-competitive person in his own right. And I mean, Barkley had his issues with gambling as well. So I don't want to like draw a line there and, and make any kind of qualitative assessment or comparison between the two. But I just don't think that Barkley is quite wired the same way. And I think that probably makes it a little bit easier for him at this stage of his life to feel content. And I, I mean, as far as being a role model goes, like, yeah, I think that's a good point because for, for most of his career, I don't think Jordan really got to be who who he actually was or is. Like, I feel like he had to hide his true self because of the marketing machine that he unwittingly created. <laughs> and I imagine that was pretty difficult for him. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I can't imagine 
um, having to live that way. And even, I think it was, was it last week's episode or it might've been this week's anyway, where he was in the um, hotel room and talking about how it was like the only piece he was going to have. Yeah. Yeah. As soon as he, I think it was this week, as soon as he walks out um, of that hotel room, it's like, you know, back to, back to the swarm of people. And like you mentioned, probably back to kind of putting a mask on. Right. You know, one thing uh, randomly unrelated to these two points, but because uh, we were kind of getting into the topic of who he really was and, and the gambling and everything. One, I'm assuming you laughed as hard as I did when when Jordan did an NBC interview. <laughs> With the sunglasses on? Yeah, claiming to not be a gambling addict while practically dressing up as a gambling addict for <laughs> Halloween. Like, I, I, I don't know if he was trying to troll people. Even Ahmad Rashad ends up saying in the doc he doesn't know why Jordan wore the shades. But, um, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I tweeted that it looked like you know, he's not a gambling addict, but it also looked like he was about to lose a million on the river. It was ridiculous. So there was that. But also when they're when they're showing how much it pissed him off the way the New York media and the media in general attacked him, um, you know, after staying out late in, the, in that Atlantic City casino right before game two of the East Finals in 93 when the Knicks beat them. And it was, you know, the Knicks go up 2 nothing, And then they show how Jordan used that fuel to just eviscerate the Knicks the rest of the series. The, the Bulls won four straight and obviously go on to the finals and win another championship. What they fail to mention, because they make it seem like, okay, he, he gets motivated by that. They lost game two. Now he just goes and kills them. Game three, which the Bulls won, Jordan shot three of 18. Because And, and the reason I know this, I went back and looked at it last night for my takeaways. I was like, oh, I want to see, you know, what did he, so what did he average in those four games? It was probably crazy. And in the last three games, it was insane. He went 54 and 29 and 29 or something like that. But in game three, he goes 22 points on three of 18 shooting. And the Bulls still managed to win by 20. Um, so I imagine for Knicks fans, that's that was a tough pill to swallow. But it is, you know, it, it kind of comes back to the whole thing as, as entertaining and as great as this doc is. It is still told through the vantage point and to the benefit, in a way, of Michael Jordan. And they, they do leave out some uh, inconvenient things, like, for example, you know, he still went three of 18 in the next game, despite them talking about how that motivation fueled him the rest of the series. Well, and like, there isn't a whole lot of pushback for things like the Isaiah Thomas thing. I I was pretty sure that it was a a matter of public record that he (laughs) had actively lobbied for Isaiah to be left off of the dream team. Like, I'm pretty sure that that, like, he's on record as saying that. In the past, am I wrong in in saying that that's the case? Like, I'm not sure. I feel like I feel like he's been on record before saying something similar to what he said in the doc, which is that he was like happy he wasn't there, or he, you know, he would have preferred him not be there because he thinks he would have ruined the camaraderie, or whatever. But I don't think he, I don't know anyway if he's actually ever come up and said that he had a hand in in keeping him from there. Whatever the case may be, that that was one of the the times where it kind of hit me like. Yeah, this is still a, a sort of MJ produced project. Right. And it's going to be filtered through that lens. And like, yeah, maybe there are some things in here that are unflattering to Jordan. But I think for the most part, if he's still having some measure of creative control over the process, then uh, you can rest assured that certain stuff is being left out. And whether it was that or whether the fact that, like, you know, obviously, you know, the whole uh, Republicans buy sneakers to thing got. Yeah glossed over a little bit and he said that that was a comment that he made in jazz and sam smith who actually i think wrote the story in which jordan was quoted as saying that originally wrote an article like before the last dance aired essentially saying the same thing that he was saying it in jest and that the whole thing got blown out of proportion but the fact remains i mean that jordan was more concerned with his brand than he was you know with it matters of social justice which is i don't want to I don't want to go in on him too hard for that because I think I I would actually defer to Howard Bryant on this, who I think has written really poignantly about like the burden that black athletes carry and the sort of demand that they be activists and that they use their platforms uh, to raise awareness about social justice when that just like, isn't really a standard that white athletes are held to for the most part. But I also just think that that is part of the Jordan story. You know, the fact that he, almost actively withdrew from that part of public life. 100%. And yeah, look, I think, and Jordan basically says it in the doc, you know, he's not Muhammad Ali. I think a lot of people want great athletes to, like no one will ever be 
from a cultural significance standpoint, no athlete is ever going to be Muhammad Ali uh, refusing entry into the Vietnam War again. Like we're probably never going to see that level of cultural impact and societal impact from an athlete. Um, and and you know also you can go through history, whether it's athletes, celebrities, politicians, whatever, like no, no pop culture figure is ever as truly flawless as their most devout followers want to believe they are. You know, Ali himself, you know, once had to grapple with some of his own segregationist comments that he made, you know, at a certain point in his career. LeBron, who we both agree has, for the most part, you know, done everything just about as right as one can, given how long the cameras have been in his face. You know, he still had that misstep earlier this year that we talked about when everything was going on with Maury and um, the comments about Hong Kong and China and what was going on there. Like, none of these guys, no athlete, no celebrity, no pop, like, whoever you're talking about, none of them are perfect. And, you know, in Jordan's case, that was, I guess, his biggest knock. I mean, some people say the gambling was the biggest knock. But, um, yeah, I just think... I think maybe because, and they do explore it in the doc too. I can't remember who was talking about it, how, you know, his reputation was as this like completely clean cut, untouchable guy. And maybe, you know, the be like Mike commercials and all that aided that. But I think it would have been naive for anyone but children (laughs) to believe that the guy was some immortal, untouchable, perfect human being because you know as we know those don't exist and just because the guy might or might not be the greatest basketball player of all time doesn't change that i think that's just a pop culture phenomenon in general yeah. you know and uh i think that our heroes and our villains are probably never quite the heroes or villains that we make them out to be in our minds but i don't know everything is really complicated and there's a lot of gray area and I think our impulse a lot of the time is to simplify things and we do that by creating this sort of binary structure of of heroes and villains and MJ during his career I think he never really made like any kind of heel turn where he wore the black hat Uh, and and it's funny like even LeBron it was really for a short period of time but like that first season in Miami I felt like sort of leaned into that a little bit and then in later years really said that that was hard on him. Like he regretted that because he didn't feel like that jived with who he was as a person. And he didn't feel comfortable sort of playing the bad guy. And like it it affected him deeply. And I think I can't really say one way or the other, but it seems to me like Jordan might've embraced that role and felt more comfortable in it than LeBron did. Absolutely. I think, I think Jordan in a, in a villainous role, you know, had there been a heel turn, I think that might have actually fit him quite well. I got a kick out of, you know, when he's talking about being motivated to beat Drexler in 92 because people like dared to compare them. And, you know, he wanted to beat Chuck in 93 because Barkley had won MVP that year. And it's it's hilarious to me. Like if you go back and look at like those two individual seasons, 91-92, Drexler averages 25 points, seven assists, seven rebounds and almost two steals. Barkley's MVP year is basically 26 points, 12 rebounds, five assists, and a couple steals on 52% shooting. And yet we hear Jordan literally say that he, quote unquote, took offense to those guys being compared to him. I mean, I get it because he's Jordan, but it's also hilarious. Like, could you imagine today an MVP averaging 26, 12, and 5 and meeting LeBron in the finals? Like, yeah, we know that LeBron would still consider himself better than that guy. But can you imagine? LeBron going into that finals against the reigning MVP with those numbers. And, you know, someone asks something about him being the next LeBron or just how good he is. And LeBron's like, I take offense to you putting our names in this. Like, it's it's hilarious, but it's also insane. Well, I mean, look, LeBron definitely has a little bit of that edge to him. 100%. And I think, I mean, it's a real shame because it seemed like there was a pretty decent chance that something like that was going to happen. Yeah. The Lakers might have played the Bucs. Uh, in the finals, and I, I, I sort of feel like I'd have to go back and look, but I, I kind of think that LeBron has been fairly reserved in the way that he's talked about Giannis, and I think any allusions to Giannis being sort of the next LeBron or the person who was going to take up LeBron's mantle, I don't know if LeBron has like downplayed it or actively kind of bucked against it, but I think there's a sense that like he hasn't really appreciated that all too much. 
and for that reason has maybe been a little bit more hesitant to praise Giannis than he has been to to praise somebody like Luka Doncic, for instance. And uh, yeah, and, and I feel like maybe there was a similar thing going on with him and Zion too. Uh, and some people have pointed to the fact that Zion, you know, didn't sign with Clutch as maybe yeah. a reason that, that LeBron has put a little bit of distance between those two guys. But I mean, he he hears people talking and like he knows uh, that there are guys coming up behind him looking to take his throne. Like I'm sure he's fully aware of that, and I'm sure he has a lot of similar feelings about that that Jordan did um, about the guys who played in his era. So um, yeah. you know, whether he would have made those feelings public or not, I don't know. But uh, I, I don't think that those feelings aren't there. Uh, no, I agree with that. But w- what I'm saying is like that that contrast, the fact that we're admitting LeBron probably doesn't make those co- – like LeBron probably doesn't come out and say, I take offense to you putting Giannis on the same level as me. Like even if he thinks it, I think that's why, you know, we're both kind of in agreement that Jordan probably could have played the villain role if he had gone all in on it. Like, and it right. You know, it would have been a fascinating uh, turn. But I definitely think it fit his personality and his kind of like, I don't give a shit personality i know i'm the best i just think it would have fit it better you know and yeah a guy like lebron didn't feel comfortable playing the villain and like we're saying i even if he thinks that i can't ever see lebron coming out and saying i took offense to that um the way jordan did for Um, guys that good and i thought i thought it was hilarious but i just I, i sort of drew that parallel just because like i remember lebron coming out years later and saying that like it really hurt him to have to to have to lean into that villain yeah. role, and and he didn't feel like it was him, um, and it took something out of him. Yeah, uh, and and I sort of feel like that was true with Jordan, but like to the opposite extent. Like the role that he was playing for the public was also at odds with who Jordan was, and like not to say that Jordan's like a, an out and out villain. No, but obviously, you know, there he had a lot of characteristics but i think the broad public would probably find unsavory and he had to sort of tamp all that down or hide it uh and play this role that realistically like nobody could live up to yeah uh and i think we we saw some of the ways in which that ate away at him yeah back to the um the last thing i want to mention i think we got on this topic originally from um the isaiah thomas not making the dream team and how it was jordan's call or not whether it was jordan's call or not I wanted to ask you, is it something I brought up in the takeaways? Now, it, it would never happen today because the U.S. team today actually gets tested and they can't leave top-tier talent at home for trivial reasons. But at the time, like the Dream Team in 92, you know, I think they were pretty confident they were going to win easily. And it was probably more about if we're going to go and do this thing and you know break this barrier down and be the first NBA team to go over there and win and crush it, let's make sure we're going with guys we admire and we're going to enjoy spending time with. If that was the case today and the U.S. team could be a lot more selective in just leaving some guys at home strictly because they flat out don't like them or because there was beef, the three names I threw out there as guys that might see their chances diminished were Russell Westbrook, Draymond Green, and Jimmy Butler. If there, if one player from today's staple of American superstars was going to be left at home for something like this, who would it be? Maybe it's not one of those three guys. Maybe you have another one. Who would be the Zeke of this era? Um, yeah, I mean, my mind sort of immediately jumped to Westbrook. Draymond's a good one, too. I mean, all, all those guys you mentioned are notoriously combative. But I think for the most part, I don't know. I, I don't have personal relationships with these guys, so I guess I can't say for sure. But I feel like they all have like a good deal of respect around the league, despite the their combative nature. Like, I feel like people generally like and respect Jimmy, like even Westbrook. I feel like players talk in really reverential terms about him, like more so than than members of the media often do. So I don't know. I mean, aside from Westbrook and his kind of petty personal grievances with like Durant and Dame Lillard, I guess. But like, does does Lillard have the kind of sway where he could be like, I'm not playing for Team USA unless Russ isn't there? I don't know. No, I think in that case they'd probably be, yeah, they'd probably tell Dame to stay home. Durant probably does, but I don't know. Yeah. If, I always sort of felt like the uh, saltiness was moving in the opposite direction in that relationship. Like it was Russ feeling that way towards KD more so than yeah. KD feeling that way towards Russ. I guess Dwight Howard would be another one. Not that oh yeah, that's a good be, one. He wouldn't maybe be on the short list today for like a Team USA spot, but maybe like five years ago. 
you could imagine like Kobe or James Harden saying that they had no interest in playing for Team USA if Dwight was going to be there. The funny Uh, thing with that is it's like the the anti-Zeke in that like Dwight wasn't starting beef with guys or like fighting guys on the court, but he was apparently so grating on teammates behind the scenes. Yeah. And and almost too silly. But I think that's a good thing with Dwight, right? Like he didn't didn't seem like an actively bad guy. He just, people seem to just find him really annoying. Yeah. So yeah, those are the ones I guess that, that come to mind for me. Any other last dance topics on your mind? I mean, I thought it was funny that Jordan was riding around the streets of Barcelona um, drinking to-go coffee out of an actual mug. Did anyone else notice that? But like, he's having a cappuccino while he talks about how he's going to screw Reebok at the gold medal ceremony. And they're like in a car and they're driving. Probably just came from the hotel, but he's got like an actual mug. What are you going to do with that when it's done? Just leave it in the car? I guess. I, I mean, was fascinated by that. I was like, why no to-go cup? <laughs> Well, you think I don't think he got that from like a coffee shop. He probably just brought that from the hotel, right? I know. I just still found it funny. Um, yeah, there's definitely something. I don't know. There's like a European affect to the way that he was holding that small cappuccino mug, hundred percent, and just talking in flippant terms. Yeah, about how he couldn't wait to fuck over Reebok. Yeah, it was uh, it was amazing. Um, Dennis Rodman turning down Phil's invite to go to the pool because quote unquote. Now I'm going to Hooters, <laughs> followed by some other choice words. It's pretty funny. The security guard that shrugged Michael after taking his money and coin tossing. Uh, yeah, I was, we got some shots of, of Mike on the golf course, too. And yeah. uh, I got to say, like, doesn't seem like he was that good a golfer. <laughs> wow. <laughs> for, the amount, for the amount that he was apparently playing. Yeah, good um, But... Uh, it's just funny. Like he was such a dominant basketball player, and you would think that he'd have more than enough competition as like an alpha NBA player with all these guys coming at him, giving him their best shot every night. But it it wasn't enough. Like he had to go out there and get on this golf course, and I guess still experience that thrill of having a heated competition with money on the line. Speaking of money on the line, and that that shrug from that security guard. Learn last night that, I mean, he passed away earlier this year, but that security guard, his name was John Michael Wozniak. Guy was a uh, an army veteran and also a former Chicago narcotics officer. Wow. Before working as uh, Bulls and Jordan security. So, yeah, that man, uh, that man was an OG. And also might have been the only guy in the entire city of Chicago with the uh, stones to talk trash to Michael Jordan's face. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, that's a, that's a pretty interesting CV he put together. Yeah. yeah, yeah, not bad. Army veteran, Chicago narcotics officer, Michael Jordan security. Oh, what yeah, did Oh, yeah, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say about that, like, and it, and it sort of goes into all the stuff we were saying about, you know, the, the sort of loneliness that Jordan's fame uh, saddled him with. I mean, we see more, more shots of him interacting with his security detail than of him interacting with his teammates. Yeah. Or his family, like yeah, his family's not really a part of this at all. Eh? The doc, I don't yeah, know. I yeah. wonder if that was a decision on Jordan's part, or I yeah, I mean, I I don't know, but like the <laughs> the one mention of his wife is like when somebody reminds him after he wins his third championship that maybe he should give her a call. <laughs> yeah, yeah. When he asks for just some peace and quiet, someone's like, "Oh, you gonna call your wife?" He's like, yeah. Um, J. A. Odonde also pointed out, and this is a good point. He tweeted it. They show Jordan battling Magic in the 91 finals. And then they show that in the 92 finals, Magic's all of a sudden on the NBC broadcast. And that's who Jordan's looking at when he shrugs. But uh, they fail to mention the kind of big seismic NBA moment that happened in between then that caused Magic Johnson to go from playing to the broadcast booth. And I know this isn't a Magic Johnson documentary, but I figured they would, hell, spend five minutes on that saga like that. Jordan could have spoken about, you know, what he felt at the time, like any of that. And, and I did, um, I, I agree with Adonde's point. Like, I think it's kind of strange that they just completely not even gloss over skip, you know, the biggest NBA moment actually of the early nineties. And they still could have done it in a way that it's from Jordan's vantage point. I just thought it was odd that they completely ignore it. Yeah. And I mean, I don't know. I, like, I think maybe they just felt like they didn't have enough time to properly address it. And 
would have felt bad about like mentioning it and then not really spending any time talking about the implications of it. But I mean, it's interesting. Like they, they certainly could have worked it in and tied it to the whole Isaiah Thomas thing. Right. Because exactly. Because, you know, Isaiah Thomas, I think was notoriously unsupportive of magic after he got that HIV diagnosis. And yeah. So I, I felt like, I don't know, that maybe would have been an opportunity to, to work that in and, and dive into the implications a little bit, but yeah. I guess, uh, that wasn't, uh, that wasn't part of the program. Um, what'd you think of the Kobe stuff at the beginning of episode five? I think it was, it was an interesting bookend to what we heard Jordan say about Kobe right. at the memorial service at Staples. So I thought, you know, because obviously like Jordan touched on all that stuff in his speech, you know, talking about Kobe being like a little brother to him. And I think you actually wrote this in your takeaways piece, basically hearing Kobe essentially say the exact same thing about Mike, that he yeah. was like a big brother to him. At, at any time that Kobe pops up on a screen, like from now until the end of time, there's going to be just like an element of bittersweetness and, and poignancy to it that wasn't there before. Even like, I haven't been watching a ton of these old games, but like a few nights ago, I, I happened upon uh, the Lakers Celtics game seven from 2010, which side note, awful, awful game. Just like yeah. one of the absolute yeah. ugliest games I've ever seen. But it's just like, you can't like every time you see him, like it's just a constant reminder yeah. uh, that he's not around anymore. And so it's, it's always going to be a little bit jarring, I think, but, but I'm glad that that made it into the documentary. And, Me too. Um, and I think when, when you're sort of scrutinizing athletes or any public figures and putting them under the microscope, it's like, it's always sort of about the duality of man. And I think the takeaway always is like, nobody is all good or all bad. Like we're all just like good and bad. And I think the, the relationship with Kobe provided a glimpse of like MJ's humanity. He had this adversarial relationship with so many of the stars of his day. And maybe it was just because Kobe was kind of coming up after him. And like in Jordan's last season, Kobe was what, like 19, 20 years yeah. old. Yeah. Um, so maybe he just didn't feel that sense of rivalry or competition or animosity between them. But he, he took Kobe under his wing, which is something like he didn't really do with anybody else. Uh, and maybe it's because he saw some of himself in Kobe they were cut from the same cloth in a lot of ways. Yeah, they were, they were sort of spiritual siblings, I guess, in a lot of ways. And so I thought that was just like, even though it was like a short detour, I thought it was one that uh, provided a little bit of heart to uh, what can otherwise feel like a bit of a calculated project. Yeah, absolutely. I thought there was something, um, I think they, they left that uh, section of the dock in a really good way, in a, in, a, in a cool way, but also a really bittersweet way when the, the last um seconds of that segment on the whole kobe michael relationship is with michael saying bye to him at the end of the 98 all-star game and saying see you down the road and then they just both walk away and obviously <clears throat> we know you know immediately that isn't sad on the surface because they then you know did see each other down the road and built this what seems like a beautiful friendship over the next 22 years but then looking at it from the vantage point of what we know now it's still somewhat like you said jarring and sad to you know equate someone saying to kobe see you down the road with you know what we now know mm -hmm. um last thing uh, we can end it on a little more of a lighthearted note um positive note on the last dance stuff is uh, we didn't record last week so we didn't get to this but i did tell Sylvester valderrama one of our loyal listeners on twitter half jokingly asked us last week uh, after one of the Rodman episodes, if we'd rather have regular load management as we have it today, or if teams could give guys three to five days of quote unquote vacation during the season, which we'd prefer. I'm, I mean, for the, for the pure entertainment, I'm going with a three to five days vacation. Uh, I mean, yeah, like I don't really have any skin in this game. So I guess uh, maybe that's a question that would be better put to some NBA players. Maybe when NBA basketball comes back and once we are allowed uh, media access once again, who knows when that will be. That's something we can ask them. I do think like the game has changed and I don't, I'm not saying that like players don't party now. Certainly like, you know, you hear <laughs> stories about yeah. a handful of players who most definitely do, 
Yeah. But the sense I get is that it's like a lot more toned down than it used to be. Players take you know, the, the sort of management of their bodies a lot more seriously than they used to. Yeah, no one's um, crushing Miller lights and cigarettes in the locker room anymore. <laughs> um, as far as we know. So, <laughs> yeah. So I think like if you ask players, they might say that they would rather just like take the days off because, you know, I don't think like Kawhi Leonard is going out and, and taking like a two or three day vacation where he's going to go on a vendor in Las Vegas. I don't know. Did um, you see those uh, video clips <laughs> of Kawhi earlier this season? I did. Wasn't that, wasn't that off season or was that during the season? I think that was during the season after oh, yeah. like a couple hours after a win, if I'm not mistaken. Well, maybe I'm wrong then. Uh, he, was, he was with Pat Beverly. Right. Yeah, I mean, look, what, what athletes do in their personal time, I consider none of my business. So yeah, um, whatever they would prefer is totally fine by me. Agreed. All right, let's take the break and then get into a very cool feature you published over the weekend. Sounds good. What's up, Pound the Rock listeners? Just a friendly reminder to rate, review, and subscribe to Pound the Rock on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. You can also check out The Score's other sports podcasts. For Major League Baseball, there's Expand the Zone. For Soccer, we've got Sweeper Keeper. Puck Pursuit has you covered for the NHL. The Score's MMA podcast with James Lynch gives you your mixed martial arts fix. And the Fantasy Football podcast with Justin Boone covers, you guessed it, fantasy football. And in case you haven't already, download The Score app, available on iPhone and Android. That's where you can find all of our feature content, as well as live scores, updates, and breaking news. Now back to the show. All right, Joe, let's dig into Mighty Morphin Power Forwards, a really cool feature that you wrote that you took a chunk of the season collecting quotes for um, back when NBA basketball was being played and we could talk to players in locker rooms. The floor is yours. Tell us um, you know, wh- why you wrote the feature, maybe what inspired you to do it and, and what it's all about. Yeah, so initially... Um, I didn't really have any intention of making this specifically about power forwards. I just wanted to write a piece about positionality in general and specifically about the disconnect between how writers, analysts, pundits sort of talk about positionality compared to how players talk about it. Because I feel like there's this trope or this notion that positions don't really matter anymore. Um, The league has gone positionless. Whereas, you know, if you hear players talk about it, a lot of the time they don't seem to subscribe to that at all. And I think we've heard a lot of players who, you know, express a particular preference for playing one position over another. And so I, I just sort of wanted to explore that and, and talk to players about how they view positionality and whether they actually subscribe to this notion that positions don't really matter anymore. And what I found was as I started uh kind of talking to players for this project, I found myself talking almost exclusively to power forwards or guys who at least played some of their minutes at power forward um, because that seemed to be the most fluid position and the hardest one to define. Um, And like nobody is really supposed to be a one position player anymore. I think like the big thing with this idea of positionless basketball is just that everybody now is expected to be more versatile Uh, But power forward, I found in particular to be like a transient position, uh, one that guys get shuttled in and out of, and one that teams all have their own conceptions about, uh, and they use completely differently. So I guess what I found is like, the idea of the game being positionless, that's really only the case for like a small handful of players. Right. And for the rest, uh, positions still matter a great deal. And so, you know, I I talked to somebody like PJ Tucker who is like, I don't understand what anybody says that they prefer one position. Like, it's really just spots on the floor. It really doesn't matter who cares. And I think I went into the piece kind of with that same perspective. And after digging into it a little bit more and talking to a bunch of different kind of players, I think where I landed on it was like, yeah, for PJ Tucker, absolutely, it doesn't matter. Because in the Houston Rockets system, offensively, PJ Tucker is spending most of his possessions spotting up in the corner. And it doesn't, like, you can say that he's playing center, you can say that he's playing the four or playing the three, no matter what, he's just going to be spacing out around whichever of James Harden or Russell Westbrook has the ball. And on defense, he is switching across every position, and that's something that his physical abilities allow him to do. So it actually really doesn't matter to him 
you know, if you want to call him a, a three or a four or a five, like it's really all the same to him. And, and that isn't the case for like some other guys who, if they get slid up to the four, like suddenly defense becomes a much different challenge for them than it would be at the three. And their role on offense actually does change because their teams play uh, like more conventional styles than the Rockets do. Um, but I found power forward to just be like the most interesting because I think there's so much variance in how different teams are using it. Yeah, no, I thought um, I thought it was a great read, um, pretty fascinating at times. I think um, the most colorful player you talked to seemed to be PJ, just because he seemed almost annoyed at the fact <laughs> and that people were still trying to define positions. I thought it was interesting too when he talked about like how um, you know bad the word tweener is perceived, and even Rudy Gay in the story saying that the the power forward position is almost more of a wing position now than it is right. a big position. I thought that was interesting. And I think maybe the best point made in the feature and of all the players and coaches you spoke to was Terry Stotts made the point um, that it really comes down to whether a guy can defend. And specifically, you know, from that, you can take that. It comes down to what position a guy can defend, right? Like so many people think about the offensive end when, when they're talking about positions. But, you know, as Stott says, so much of it is, you know, can they defend and what can they defend? And, and yeah, I just thought that was kind of an interesting point that a lot of people don't necessarily think about or don't think about first and foremost when they are discussing what position a guy should play or is naturally. Right. And that was the thing. So like Torian Prince was one of the guys I talked to and he played almost exclusively power forward this year after mostly being a three up till this season. And I think Kevin Durant being out for the year had a lot to do with that. And And Prince like really struggled this year at both ends of the floor. But, you know, for him, he was saying like at the offensive end it's more or less interchangeable between the three and the four but defensively like you're you're guarding completely different types of players uh and that was something he really struggled with because he's not built like pj tucker like he's actually a couple inches taller but he's also a lot more slender so sliding up from one position to the next isn't like a piece of cake for somebody like that um and another point rudy gay made was like when you're playing the four uh, like schemes are different and like you have to be more of an active helper at the four. You spend more time switching on to point guards as the four. Uh, there's less backline help behind you when you're a four. So um, they're all, there are these kind of practical differences uh, that I feel like people don't always take into account. And what I found fascinating is like, so, you know, yeah, Terry Stock said what he said. He's like, you have to be able to defend your position, but it like, what does it really mean to be able to defend the four? Because right. So many teams now are using the four as an additional wing position, but then there are a bunch of teams who aren't, right? Like you have like Torian Prince, a six, seven wing is playing the four for the Nets, but then like Chris Stapps Porzingis at seven foot three is playing the four for the Mavs. And like Anthony Davis is playing the four for the Lakers and Al Horford's playing the four for the Sixers and DeMontis Sabonis is playing the four for the Pacers. So that variance, I think is what made it so interesting. Like if you, essentially like this ideal prototype of the modern power forward has like sprung up in the negative space between the way that different teams are using it. And so to be an ideal power forward, like you got to be able to defend wings, but you also have to be able to defend bigs. And I think there aren't like a ton of guys who fit that description. Um, So a lot of these teams are sort of having to pick and choose. And I didn't talk to anybody on Utah, but I think that Utah is like an interesting test case. Because for a number of years, they had Derek Favors playing the four alongside Rudy Gobert. And eventually they decided it wasn't tenable anymore because it wasn't working offensively. So they downsized at the four to, to get more offense on the floor. And like their offense improved this season, but their defense was significantly worse. So I think these teams, there's always trade-offs that you're making unless you have, I mean, like, like maybe Pascal Siakam is a good example of somebody who fits like the kind of ideal power forward prototype where he's part wing and part big, and he can do a little bit of everything. He can guard bigs and he can guard wings. He can play offense like a wing where he's creating off the dribble, but he can also play offense like a big where he's playing out of the post. But there aren't a ton of guys who fit that mold. So I think in a lot of cases, teams are are picking one or the other. Yeah, no, and I think it's a good point that of, you know, in this age of quote-unquote positionless basketball, the power forward position is probably the one that is now the least defined. And... um I think working off that base, you did a really good job kind of digging into it and and getting some good stuff from players. Did you 
did you did you have any other players that you still wanted to talk to before the season was suspended, or were were you at a point where you were good with it? I was pretty good with it. I think. I mean, this was long enough as it was, as uh, as many commenters pointed out. It was uh, it was a long piece, <laughs> um, so I don't know how much more I could have squeezed in. But I, I'm just like I'm, I'm a little interested to see kind of where it goes from here because. For the longest time, it's been moving um, in this direction where, like, when people think about small ball, I feel like the tendency is to think of teams playing with, like, a small ball center, when really, like, the way that small ball has impacted the league most is at the four. Like, that's the position to me that has, even if, like, the, like the, the power forward today, on average, might be the same size as it was 20 years ago, but stylistically, like, that player is completely different, right? There aren't these, like, back-to-the-basket power forwards anymore and like like terry scott said it's like it's a skill position now it's not really a power position anymore and i think this season was the first time in a while where that trend started to actually tip a little bit back in the other direction um and i think you know a few teams in particular were responsible for that one was the lakers uh with davis who who was playing mostly center last year for the pelicans was playing almost exclusively power forward this year uh the pacers essentially starting Sabonis this year as opposed to bringing him off the bench as they did in past years, playing him at the four a lot. Uh, the Mavs obviously going with two bigs. The Knicks basically always playing with two bigs on the floor. Um, I think, like the Blazers, uh, like they started the season with Zach Collins as their four. Like there, there were all these teams that I think were going with this two big look to see how it played. And I don't know if that is like an indicator of a trend that's going to flip back in the other direction or just an aberration. Um, but I did think it was really interesting that so many different teams are doing such different things at that position. Yeah, absolutely, man. I think, I think there is a lot of good talking points in there. And if, you know, someone is as into basketball as we are, as you know, I assume most people that listen to this podcast are, I definitely recommend that they dig into it. And, you know, I know you mentioned it's a long read, but what the hell else do we have to do right now as basketball fans? Um, but, you know, consume as much basketball content as we can while there are no games to watch. So I definitely recommend anyone who is a basketball fan, anyone who's listening to this, dig into Joe's Mighty Morphin Power Forwards piece. Uh, yeah, you can find that piece. It's pinned on my Twitter profile. If you're at all interested, uh, you can go and check it out. Oh, they're interested. <laughs> thanks for the plug cash i appreciate it man yeah no worries you got anything else you want to talk about on this quarantined monday afternoon uh, nah man i think i'm pretty spent aren't we all all right well <laughs> i guess until next week or i don't know maybe something will happen this week and we'll do something later this week but until next time for joe wolf on i'm just Pound the rock.